right. My, uh, <clears throat> my wife and I had date night on Friday, and uh, we went in and watched the movie Avatar. And uh, it is a secular movie, so I'm not saying from the pulpit you should go watch it, but it is a good movie. I did like it. And uh, I think the thing I liked about it most was it was so creative. It, um, it, it caused your imagination to just run wild. And, and they created this world with all these colors and, and these different animals that were similar to the animals we see here on Earth, but, you know, it's an it's a alien planet. But it stirred in me affections for heaven. You know, we are, we are you older saints, I'm, I'm a bit jealous of you. You're on the brink. You are, and you're about to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, I, need, I need to go to prayer, so let's go to prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray that you would uh, knock the fog out of our minds, that we would have the ability to imagine your holiness, your throne room. May these people be so captivated by your words. May they be devoured like a lion from your word. Lord, I thank you for your sovereign hand at work and that you brought each and every individual here by your hand on purpose to hear these words. Lord, I pray that your, that your word cut like a sword. Open our hearts. May, may we have eyes to see and ears to hear. May we be pliable and move and mold to your word. I ask all this in your heavenly name. Amen. Okay. You could probably put that first slide up, Trevor. <clears throat> okay, good morning, church family. My name is Trevor Russell. I'm one of the elders here at Faith Church. And every once in a while, we elders get the joy of speaking to you. The last time I had the joy was January 2nd of 2022, so I guess this is becoming a bit of an annual thing for me. Stay tuned for the trilogy in 24. The last time I spoke, though, I talked about uh, um, that humanity's biggest failure is a lack of passion for God's holiness and a lack of passion for killing sin. I then went on to encourage you with 10 ways you could live your life that would bring God glory. Today, I want to run that thread out just a little bit further. I want to talk where holiness and sin collide. Where when we strive to see and draw near to God's holiness and see His moral perfection, it causes us to look upon ourselves and see our state as well, less than holy, less than morally perfect. But before I really dive in, I want to give credit where credit is due. A lot of what I'm going to say today is heavily influenced by the preaching of John Piper. Um, particularly uh, two sermons, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of Hosts, which he preached back in the 80s. 
And the second one, in my opinion, is one of the top 10 sermons in American history. It's titled, A Generation Passionate About God's Holiness. Both can be found at the Desiring God website. Um, the other individual that needs acknowledgement is Jackie Hill Perry and her book, Holier Than Thou. Uh, I'm pulling from this book quite a bit. I'll be quoting her directly and running with some of the thoughts in the first two chapters. Before I was asked to speak today, Pastor Matt and I were talking about books we were trying to get read by the end of the year. I told him I just picked up Holier Than Thou from the back desk that we have in the church here. He asked how I liked it, and I responded with, I feel a teaching coming on. If you look at the screen behind me, uh, I just, uh, yeah, okay, look at the screen behind me. I've heard it debated that some preachers don't like to title their sermons because they fear that if they title it, it will restrict uh, the Holy Spirit and make them stay on topic. I want you to know God has written this teaching for you and for my benefit, and I completely intend to stay under this title. Let's look at the screen, though. What stands out to you? What's something that you're observing? It is big. Yeah. Mostly black, a little white. That's right. There's no gray area, is there? There's an abrupt separation from the light to the dark. And that's actually part of the definition of holiness. It's set apart, it's unique, it's different, it's other, it's distinct. It's cut off from what's considered common. But I think before we get going too far, we should define what God's holiness is. Almost a laughable concept, really define the indefinable, but we have God's Word to help us know Him. He created us with some cognitive ability to know what He's like. He created us with mouths to speak, and so futile as it might seem, we must try to define His holiness. The journey with me, where language itself runs out of the ability to describe God, it's actually pretty awesome that we serve a God that can't be defined. Second slide. Here's the definition we'll be working from today. God's holiness is his infinite value as the absolutely unique, morally permanent person that he is, and who by his grace made himself accessible to his infinite value as the absolutely unique, morally permanent person that he is. There are times that we try to make His holiness a part of God. That God moves in between His attributes when deciding how to be, as if one day loving and the next vengeful. However, holiness is not an aspect of God. Holiness is who He is through and through. Matthew Barrett says this, God is His attributes. That means all that is in God simply is God. Unique, morally perfect, and accessible. Let's see this in Scripture. Now, I'm going to go through a ton of Scripture. My wife warned me that I should let you know you're about to hit a tornado. But, but I do want you, it's set up 
The first three verses are about unique, the next three verses morally perfect, and the next three are about his accessibility. Exodus 15.11 Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, and doing wonders? Revelations 15.4 Who will not fear the Lord and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Isaiah 40.25 To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Unique. Holy. Psalms 92.15 He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. 2 Samuel 22.31 and Psalms 18.30 both start out the same. As for God, his way is blameless. 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is a massive verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Morally perfect, holy. Ephesians 2.19 So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, accessible, holy. To go deeper into what Scripture means when it testifies that God is holy... Let's glean from Isaiah's vision of him. Turn in your Bible or power up your devices and let's go to Isaiah 6. We'll be reading 1 through 7. Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. And just keep this in mind as you're going there. Isaiah is the most messianic book of the Old Testament. And it just boggles my little mind that this book was written 750 years before Emmanuel before God in the flesh breathed the same air that we do. Here are the words from Isaiah, God's holy mouthpiece. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood two seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, 
this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. I wonder if these are the type of verses that Charles Spurgeon had in mind when he said that the word of the Lord is like a lion. You let it out of the cage and it can defend itself. And I know you like to quote Jared C. Wilson. I don't know if you follow him on like Insta tweet face or whatever, but I was listening to a podcast and Jared C. Wilson quoted Spurgeon and he said, the other thing about that is when a lion roars, nobody mistakes it for a mouse. And this is a mighty piece of scripture. Isaiah says he's lost. It's like he's wandering around. Uh, it's like he's wandering about, and all of a sudden he accidentally walks into the throne room. It's kind of like Narnia. He pulls back the, the doors of the wardrobe and then stumbles into a foreign land. He walks right into heaven. And here is what's amazing it seems like an ordinary, mundane day up in heaven. Like this is the common deal. Glorious things are just always happening here. Okay, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high lifted up. It's almost too obvious to mention, but the author wants us to see Uzziah's dead and God ain't. You see, God is unique in his holiness in the fact that he has no birth certificate and he will never have an obituary written about him in the local paper. Here's the other thing we see. Whatever reign Uzziah had, whatever power and authority, the amount of riches he thought he had, pales in comparison to the Holy One. Uzziah's authority over the small piece of the world that God allowed him to govern was limited in scope and time. And that's still true today. We just had some November elections, some very close November elections. And I'm guessing not everyone or everything you voted for went your way. I'm guessing that some of you felt a bit frustrated. I get it. For a guy that's not really political at all, I felt pretty rattled. First one was a needed reminder for me. We need to see that even though earthly governments don't reign like we would like, we belong to, we're heirs to, a kingdom that is perfect, pure, sinless, agendaless, holy, and eternal. Washington, Lincoln, Roosevelt, Bush, Obama, Cape Brown, Tina, United States government, Russia, NATO, all these will fade. Put four years up against eternity. That is a political party worth getting excited about. God's sovereign. God's in control. God's alive. And the next part of the verse points out he's high and lifted up. He's supreme. There's no other comparison. Isaiah says something very similar, to, <clears throat> very similar to this again in chapter 57, verse 15. The one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. 
You see, God rules with power and then he does not have to borrow. Feeding birds, clothing fields, putting kings into and out of rule, holding back, back floodwaters, splitting seas, moving mountains, shooting stars across the very sky he spoke into existence, upholding the world's orbit and the sun's heat. All this is done while simply sitting not freaking out, trying to muster up strength to make all this happen. He's not a coach on the sideline running up and down, shouting words of encouragement, trying to impress on his excitement onto his players. Or think of the movie Braveheart. Remember when William Wallace was given his famous freedom speech, riding up and down the battle lines, trying to arouse such an emotion in his fellow man that they would be willing to charge the battlefield, giving their lives for the cause. No, he's sitting in absolute control. He's not rattled by the things of this world. He's not taken off guard. He possesses all the power. For time's sake, I'll kind of be passing over the next few verses. But the last part of verse 1 talks about the train of his robe filling the temple. I think that means to describe his majestic beauty. Think of a bride with a long train, so long that it flows up and down these aisles, through every room on this campus, and through the hallways. The idea of the train is to punctuate the beauty of the bride. It also signifies royalty. There's actually a style of bridal train called a monarch train. And when I was rehearsing this to my wife, she goes, did you look up bridal trains? I did. God's train, or his royalty, is filling every square inch and the earth. Verses 2, 3, and 4. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was full of smoke. Y'all, these are some very rare verses that we are gazing upon. In Hebrew language and literature, the use of repetition was common practice. It was a way of bringing importance, magnifying, making a word bigger and greater. We see even Jesus using this practice. Truly, truly, I tell you. But rarely do we see Scripture using it to the third degree. In fact, holy, holy, holy only comes up one other time in Scripture, and that's in Revelations 4.8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And ironically, it's used to describe God. And the seraphim, as far as I know, this is our only glance at them in Scripture. Rare, holy beings that can't even gaze upon God's beauty, and yet Isaiah, a sinner, somehow is able to take this in. That's astonishing. But if you're thinking these seraphim as cute little fat babies, they're not. You need to think bigger. These seraphim are so large that when they cry, holy, 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 heaven's 
foundations are shaking. Verse 5. Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We're six chapters in, and the author finally speaks. Isaiah's response is so appropriate, though. Sometimes we get lost in our thinking. Sometimes we think or say things like, when I get to heaven, or I'm going to ask God when I see him. I would just warn us from acting that way. One, it's a bit prideful to take a position of authority over the one of ultimate authority. And two, I think you'll be lucky to mutter anything at all. Our example here shows us that proximity to God, to God creates a moral self-awareness. Unspoken but undeniable. Nobody has said anything to Isaiah at this point. If anything, as I was reading along, I kind of expected Isaiah to join in with the seraphim and his singing. And yet, when in the light of God, Isaiah cries out, Woe is me! He sees himself honestly. He sees the distance between a good Christian and the pureness of the Holy One. That third slide. You see, holiness makes honesty an obligation. This is not rare to Scripture, though. Let's look at Peter's response in Luke 5.8. Slightly different scenario. Jesus, the Holy One, is standing on the banks of a lake, no longer clothed like the majestic king that he is, no seraphim, no, no throne room, and he's about to call his first disciples to join his ministry. And Peter has been fishing all night and hasn't caught a single fish. Which I just stopped right there. I don't think Peter has ever recorded a a caught fish in the Bible. He might be the worst fisherman ever. But Jesus tells him to cast his nets into the deep. Peter reluctantly casts his nets to the deep, and we all know what happens next. Fish. Lots and lots of fish. So many, in fact, that the nets themselves were about to break. Peter knew this was a miraculous catch. This was unique. And thus, so was the man instructing him. But listen to Peter's response with Isaiah's response still ringing in our ears. He says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. What I find so intriguing about both of their reactions is that Being in God's company didn't inspire praise first, but confession. A depth of self-awareness partnered with real-life fear. Both men understood themselves differently at the sight of God, as if by proximity their hearts and their nature were laid bare and exposed to the light. When you draw near to to God, who is light, and has no darkness in him, it will illuminate your conscience to understand something very simple. That God is holy, and you are not. When we see God's holiness, when we have passion to pursue it, when we trust his ways in making us holy, 
That's when I'm arguing we get passionate about killing sin. Isaiah was standing in the throne room. He saw God clearly. He saw his majestic power. He saw his otherness, his transcendence. He saw his infinite value, his his all-surpassing beauty, his supremacy, his extreme value. And Isaiah saw that he did not measure up. What happens next in the text is probably one of the most amazing things yet. An angel of the Lord reaches out with a coal and cleanses his unclean lips. I think also it's amazing that Isaiah, a prophet, his profession was to speak God's word and he realizes his lips were unclean. It's profound. It says, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Hallelujah, Jesus. Jesus' moral perfection covers Isaiah in order that he can even be in the company of God. You can't sacrifice enough bulls to cover all that Jesus covered. It took God purifying you in order for us to be in his presence. Before we took a break from the Kingdom Life series for Advent, I'd already picked what verses I would be going over. And what was neat was to watch God weave it together. The very last verse that Derek tore apart was Matthew 5.48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Isaiah 6 is Matthew 5 in action. God has cleansed you. You are a new holy creation. Live in light of that truth, dear brothers and sisters. Last slide. Jackie Hill Perry says this, Having an erroneous view of the unblemished ethical nature of God tempts us to doubt his word, leading to the denial of his worth. If his character isn't trusted, his words won't be believed. I think we sin most often when we see the things of this world as more valuable, more pleasurable than what God has planned for our lives. We demonstrate a lack of trust in him when we live under our own skewed way of thinking that that's the way things ought to be. I just attempted to give us a glance at God's holiness to show you that he is righteous, upright, and sinless. And if sinless, and he is the most trusted being in all of creation. I only have one, news, one New Year's resolution for you this year. Passionately pursue God's holiness. Let 2023 be the year you trust his ways higher than your ways, more this year than you have in the past. Let me pray for us. Lord, Thank you for making yourself accessible through the revealing of the Spirit and the atonement of your Son. God, as we move into communion with each other, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray that they would not just remember a historical event that happened 2,000 years ago, but they would so feel your blood that has covered them that they would take and eat of your body feeling you making 
them more and more into your exact replication. That you are tenderly moving us from one degree of glory to the next. I pray that they wholeheartedly trust in your ways. And most of all, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you stir in us affections for Jesus. Help us see him for what he is. And God, make us bold mouthpieces for the advancement of your beautiful gospel calling to the entire world. Amen.